Well, good morning. It's great to be with you here this morning. Let's uh, open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 16 this morning. And it's a uh, lengthy portion of Scripture, but I promise to go somewhat quickly. Uh, I'll do my best to get us through. Acts chapter 16, the title of the sermon is uh, The Sinner Seeking God or A Sinner Seeking God. And we're going to begin in verse 11, Acts 16, 11, and why not read down to the end of the chapter, verse 40, Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. This is God's word. Please give careful attention to its reading. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And then in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation." And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, notice, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and, and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, verse 23 says, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved. 
And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And then just the rest of the chapter quickly, verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent you to, uh, to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive, and then hands to apply, feet to walk out the things that we see in this text before us this morning. Lord, I pray that you would work mightily in this room here and beyond. We commit ourselves to you, we commit this time to you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's an old uh, sermon uh, illustration that's made its way uh, around the church for many years, and it's, it's got different applications at the end of it, but it, it says something like this, you know, Jesus has ascended back to the Father's right hand, he's, he's sitting in glory, and the angels come up to him, and, and uh, the angels say, okay, that was great what you did down there, Jesus, and, uh, you know, uh, living a perfect life obeying the law of God and then dying for the sins of these people and then rising again and, and ascending back to heavenly glory, coming back to heaven. Now what's the plan? And Jesus says to the angels, you know, it's in the hands of the church. It's up to them. And then the pastor will say, the missionary will say, you know, it's up to you uh, to see what God's going to do moving forward. You know, God's in a bind is really the idea that people put forth. You have to help him out. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, God's love, this is what people oftentimes will say, God's love has gotten him into an embarrassing situation that his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. That's not true. (laughs) That's definitely not true. It's a bill of goods that we've been sold And it's nonsense. It's nonsense. I think it's important to know right now as we start this sermon, it's important for you to know and understand, biblically speaking, from the scriptures, that God never needs your help. Understand that right now. Before we go any further, God doesn't need anything from you. He created you. He sustains you. 
He provides for you. He takes care of you. He saves you and keeps you. I want you to be encouraged by these glorious realities. God doesn't need you to save his people. God's not in heaven wringing his hands, wondering what's going to happen. Are these people going to step up and step out? But that is an important question. Are these people going to step up and step out? See, we have a tremendous opportunity and privilege as the church of Jesus Christ to be a part of what God is doing in the world. He does not need you, but he will use you for his glory and for the good of his church, for the good of his people. And I'm here this morning in large part to encourage you but also to motivate you. To motivate you, to be a part of, to think often, to think early about the Great Commission. All authority has been given to Jesus to go forth with the gospel and to make disciples of all nations and of every nation. Baptizing, teaching preaching, proclaiming, and that goes on and on until Jesus returns. It is a privilege, yes, a duty, but it is a glorious privilege to be a part of that work. And so I want to think about three portraits, three snapshots in this chapter. This well-off woman in verses 13 to 15, Lydia, uh, this double-bound girl in verses 16 to 18, and then the longest section by far is the Philippian jailer in verses 23 and following. But as you read through the book of Acts, you read about the the church being born, the New Testament church being born in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. God pours out his spirit, and and there's a a megachurch overnight, you know. There's 3,000 people that are converted instantly, and, and so what are we doing now? Well, They start to minister to those people there, the apostles do, but the gospel starts going out from Jerusalem. And by Acts chapter 8, people are kind of fleeing uh, because of persecution. God's sending them out. And they're not just going out to hide. They're not just going out to lay low. They're going out to preach and proclaim Jesus Christ. The Savior for sinners, the only Savior for sinners, come what may. They're going out with the message, and God is utilizing them to see sinners converted. Jews and then non-Jews, Gentiles alike, are being converted, and churches are being planted. And you have this addition that's leading to this multiplication, and it's going in wonderful ways. And you see Paul and his buddies called. Paul and Silas are spoken of here, and they're sent out of their church in Antioch to be missionaries and church planters. And they're going out anywhere they can go, and they are going with this message. And in the previous section, in the beginning of this chapter, Paul and his team are are seeking to go one direction, and they're stopped, they're hindered. And they're seeking to go another direction, and they're stopped, and they're hindered. And they come to the west, and they come to a body of water, and they say, where are we going to go now? What are we going to do now? And Paul has this vision of this man in Macedonia. Come over here. We need your help. And so Paul gets his team together and says, we're going over there. And they make their way and end up as this verse 11 tells us, verse 12 tells us in Philippi, which is a leading city 
in Macedonia and a Roman colony. And this, by the way, is when the gospel makes its way uh, to what we now call Europe. This is a huge moment in the history of the church. The gospel making its way to Europe is a big reason why many of us in this room are now Christians. And so Paul and his team are there, and there's no synagogue. There aren't enough male Jewish men to have a synagogue. And so what people would do back in those days would go out and, and pray and praise on the Sabbath by the riverside, going back to Babylonian captivity days. And so Paul and his team make their way out there, and they find some women by the riverside. And the one that's pointed out is this woman, Lydia. And it says there in verse 14 that she was from Thyatira, says she was a seller of purple, and that she was a worshiper of God. This is a woman of means. This is a wealthy woman that would rub elbows with the rich and the famous. She had multiple houses in multiple cities. She would make her way back and forth and do work in both places. And it says that she's also a worshiper of God, which means she's acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, but it seems that she's not yet converted. So she has this form of moralism. She's a moral woman. She's rich. She knows rich and famous people. You might say she's living her best life now. You might say she's living the, the Thyatiran dream. But she doesn't know Jesus. What, what do you think about people? What do you think about people that have it all? And they look like their lives are all together and they are rich and famous and drive nice cars and uh, they, they, they live in nice houses, and they're kind of morally upright people. They're, they're good people, but, but they don't know the Lord. What is your thought as far as talking to them about Jesus? Oh, they'll, they'll, never, they'll never believe this. They'll never come to faith in Jesus Christ, because their life is already good. But that's not the position that Paul took. Paul went out there to them, didn't even assume just because they were gathered and, you know, uh, having some kind of religious service based on Old Testament scripture, that she knew the Lord. She spoke gospel, Paul spoke gospel words, and notice, the Lord opened her heart to believe. The Lord opened her heart uh, to give heed to what was being said there in verse 14, to pay attention and this woman, for the sake of time, is, is converted, and she's now uh, baptized. And you have the first member of the core group of Philippi OPC. As you go on to read the end of it, it seems that the church began to meet there in her house for worship. And so God sends Paul and his team, so that this woman might come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. She's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. She's the one that the Old Testament was, uh, Jesus is the one that the Old Testament was pointing to, that she'd been looking for, and now she's found him. And she says, if you think that I'm, I'm worthy, if you think that I'm a true believer, you know, come and stay 
at my house. And she prevailed, verse 15 says, she prevailed upon them. And so it's important for us to understand um, what does it profit a man? What does it profit a woman to gain the entire world and then lose their own soul? Or what will a man, what will a woman give in exchange for their soul? What is a soul worth? What is eternity in the presence of God worth? And maybe there's someone watching, someone listening, someone here in this room that says, you know, my life's pretty good. I pretty, have, pretty much have it all going on. I don't, I don't think I need to give my life to Jesus. I don't think I need to lay down my life to anyone. Things are going pretty well for me doing it the way that I've been doing it. But someday, every one of us in this room will stand before King Jesus and give an account. It's appointed unto men to die once, and after this, the judgment. And if you aren't robed in his righteousness, I want you to hear me say this this morning, your life can be fantastic. It can be going every kinds of great. But if you don't need know Jesus, you're lost forever. It's better to know Jesus Christ and to have him as your Savior and Lord and to have absolutely nothing else, nothing else, than to have everything the world could ever offer and not know Jesus. And I hope every single person in this room is convinced of that. If you don't know Jesus, you have nothing ultimately. And there is nothing but torment and misery awaiting you at the end of this life that is is but a vapor. So the second picture is radically different. A a rich, well-to-do woman and then a double-bound slave girl. This is a young girl. She's owned by masters. And she's used for profit. Because she seems to be, and we, we don't want to get down into the details on this, she seems to be able to tell uh, stories and, and um, say things that are true about different people and different things. And she, so she brings her, uh, her owners... Much gain, verse 16 says, by her fortune-telling. And so as Paul and his team are making their way around Philippi, she's following after them, and she's saying, verse 17 says it, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she just, she's just following them around, saying these different sorts of things over and over again. And it's interesting to me because these things, as you look at them, you probably think these things are true, and they are. They are. But Paul becomes agitated after a while. He he takes it for quite a while. But eventually, after a number of days, he's greatly annoyed. You know, Paul would get greatly annoyed at times. And he turns and says, notice to the spirit, not to the girl, but the spirit that's possessing the young girl, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And that demonic spirit came out that very hour. And I think this is important. I think what we're seeing here is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. We're not looking to go around casting out demons today. I'm not uh, not hoping that you do that. But I do hope you understand that Jesus Christ has ultimate power and authority. 
over anything, over everything, over all things. All authority is given to me, he says at the end of Matthew 28 before he goes back to heaven. And so I do believe that this young girl uh, is the second member of this core group in Philippi. I do think these, these portraits are painting uh, what this church in Philippi looks like, that, that it's made up of different people that are in the community. You don't want churches that look just like one group of people, just like one age group, just like one demographic, just like one nationality. The church should look like a community if it's properly preaching the gospel. And so now you have two, you have two members. But, verse 19, so you have this well-off woman, this double-bound girl that's set free, and she comes to know Jesus in his power, in his deliverance, and now the setup for the Philippian jailer, which we probably all know the story, or most of us know the story quite well. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers, before the rulers. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, they're disturbing our city, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And I think it's interesting to understand here, these, um, these slave owners are just mad because their hope of gain is gone, and so they're going to get Paul and Silas, they're going to get these guys, they're going to they're take it out on them. And they bring these charges, by the way, that are not true. Judaism was fine in that day. There was a freedom to, to, to preach uh, Judaism and, and Christianity and these, and these things. They weren't stirring the city up in any kind of... They're lying. So they're trying to take the, the moral high ground, and, and they take the moral high ground by lying and being deceptive. They're trying to take the moral high ground by being vindictive about a slave girl being set free, a demon-possessed girl being set free. And it just reminds me so much of our culture and our society today, where people that advocate for things that are good and right and proper are a stench in God's nostrils. They're an abomination to the Lord. And the scriptures say, don't they, woe to those people that call evil good and good evil. But here you have that. And listen, here you have the people of God that have stepped out in faith, that are seeking with everything that is in them to serve the Lord, to follow faithfully, to preach and proclaim Christ in Him crucified, wherever the Lord leads. They knew this was the Lord that brought them to this place, but now they have just been mistreated, beaten, and cast into solitary confinement. They've been beaten by people from town. They've been stripped of their outer garments. They've been beaten with rods, and now... They've been given off to the Philippian jailer to put them in the deepest prisons in stocks. And the question arises at times in our lives, why does God allow this sort of thing to happen in my life when I'm just seeking to be faithful? Why does being faithful to the Lord sometimes lead to really hard things? The answer to that? I don't know. Because it does? Because that's God's will? 
I do want you to make you aware of something that's really important, and, and maybe you haven't thought about this. Maybe you see it on some level uh, and haven't really kind of put these pieces together. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Uh, there is um, an approach to suffering in our Western culture that's, that's, um, that's really never been tried before. Like, historically, every culture has had some reason, some rationale for suffering, you know, biblical and otherwise, Christian and otherwise. But there's always been a reason for suffering, and there's always been some kind of usefulness for suffering. They've always tried to have some explanation for why suffering happens in this world, in this life. But our Western society and culture has no place for suffering anymore. There's no good reason and the only thing to do with suffering or hardship or difficulty is to get away from it as fast as you can. Brothers and sisters, God has a place for suffering in your life. And I want to make, make sure that you understand that you need to be more educated by Scripture than by culture. Some of the best things that can happen in your life come through difficult seasons. Some of the, the greatest growth you will ever experience, some of the closest times you'll ever have with the Lord are in your darkest hour. Because it's there, you know that you know that you know God is with you. Don't allow the culture to teach you how to do theology. So, so Paul and Silas are in solitary. And I just want you to put yourself in their sandals for a minute. You've been beaten. You've been mistreated. You've been locked up. What's going through your heart? What's going through your mind right now? Are you complaining to each other? Are you grumbling to the Lord? Or are you telling yourself right now God is in control and he knows what he's doing and he's about to do something good? What are you doing? I'll make the case as we go through the rest of this passage that Paul and Silas are doing that very thing, the last thing that I mentioned. They're aware that God is at work they're aware that God has brought them to this place and that something good's going to happen. So they've been beaten with rods. The Philippian jailer, after many blows, verse 23, have been put upon them. The Philippian jailer throws them into the deepest prison. The inner prison, verse 24, says, fastens their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Now, I might have been praying too. I might have been praying some imprecatory psalms. Lord, kick their teeth in. Get them now. But I don't think that's what they were praying. It says they were praying and they were singing hymns to God. And, and I, I think a lot of us have an understanding that singing good, rich hymns, Scripture, uh, when we're going through it, is really a great tool. It's just great to sing to the Lord. It's great to sing uh, about the Lord. 
And I love as, as the, the verse goes on, they're, they're praying and singing hymns, and the prisoners were listening. The prisoners were listening. You know, you see these jail movie, these jailhouse movies or whatever, and people start uh, singing at midnight or in the middle of the night or whatever, and people are like, be quiet, you know. Knock it off. But the prisoners were listening. And I, I love this too, because... As you think about this theology of suffering, um, your suffering, this is important for you to, to remember, because it's easy to forget, especially when you're suffering, that your suffering doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. So, so many times we suffer, we go through hard times, and we kind of think it's ours, and we do kind of what we want to do with it. We turn inward, we do the navel-gazing thing, we start saying, poor me. And we forget that it's the Lord's. And it's for us to benefit. And it's for the Lord to work through us to reach other people around us. And I think it's important for us to understand that people watch us. They listen to us as professing Christians when we go through hard things to see if we really believe what we say we believe. And I'm not saying that we're ever going to do this perfectly. We, we won't. But are, are we seeking, are we seeking uh, to do it this way? Are we honest about the fact that, yeah, maybe I'm struggling in this, but, but I, I want to do what the Lord has. I, I want to do this right. I'm weak, I'm frail, but I'm doing it. The prisoners were listening. And suddenly, in verse 26, there's this great earthquake. You, you know those earthquakes? We're from California. I, I feel like there used to be a lot more earthquakes out here than there are these days, and that, that, I guess that's good. Uh, but you know those earthquakes that, that happen, and uh, foundations are shaken, sure. And then, you know, they have those details where immediately all the doors fly open. You know those earthquakes? And, and the earthquake, when all the shackles fall off, those earthquakes, prison doors open up and people's handcuffs fall off. And the, oh, you don't? No. no, this is a supernatural event. Now, here's what's interesting, and this hit me recently. Um, the Lord, multiple times in the book of Acts, the Lord has broken his people out of prison. Where like, you know, the doors open up and the apostles go out or the angel comes to Peter and wakes him up and says, get dressed and come on. And there's multiple events where, the, where the, the apostles get out of prison in the book of Acts and they just go out. And they go preach in the, you know, in the center of town or they go knock on doors and say, hey, I'm here. And maybe you're thinking, if you're, if you're following along that way, this is what's going to happen again but it's not. All the prisoners, however many prisoners were there, their doors are open, their shackles fall off, and yet they don't go anywhere. They don't leave. And I think this is, this is kind of reading between the lines, but I think it's really excellent. Because we read about the fact that Paul is praying, and he's singing hymns, and the, and the prisoners are listening. And then when this thing happens... Nobody goes anywhere. 
See, I think they're looking to Paul. I think they want to see what this guy's going to do, and he stays there. He doesn't leave because his freedom's not ultimate. So that tells us he wasn't just saying, Lord, set us free. Get us out of here. Because if he was, he would have said, amen, and off he went. The doors are open, verse 26. Everyone's bonds fall off. And the jailer, the Philippian jailer, and I haven't talked to you about him, but he probably would have been like a retired military guy. And he's kind of at the end of his days. Life's okay. He's just like, you know, whatever. I'm working this job at night. And then I just do kind of whatever retired soldiers do. But the Lord's coming for him. And it's amazing the way he does. When the jailer wakes up, verse 27, and he sees the prison doors are open, he draws his sword, and he's about to kill himself, run himself through. You say, why is he going to do that? Because if he loses his prisoners, then their sentence is upon him. And his assumption is, if he starts to see the doors that are open, his assumption is that people have left. His assumption is that people have escaped. And so he says, why go through this other excruciating stuff? Why go through these hard things? I'm just going to take care of matters right now. And he pulls out his own sword. He's about to run himself through. And Paul, who he just put in solitary a little while earlier, cries out with a loud voice and says, don't do it. We're all here. Now, I might have cried out, maybe, don't, don't, don't do it. Ah, he did it. Oh, well, I gave it a shot. Listen, this, this man is one thrust. He has walked up to the precipice of a Christless eternity. And from man's perspective, I want you to understand this. God doesn't need you, but God will work through you. I want you to understand that Paul saved this man from our perspective, from a human perspective. If he doesn't cry out in this moment, it seems that this man will run himself through. He doesn't have bitterness He's not crying for this man to receive what he deserves because Paul understands what he deserves. Paul understands his whole life that I am the chief of sinners, that no matter how much service I do, no matter how closely I walk, no matter how obediently I follow, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And yes, justice is a good thing. Justice is a great thing, but vengeance belongs to the Lord and he will repay at his time and in his way. And so he cries out to this man and says, don't do it, we're here. The man turns on the lights, whatever that looks like, and he runs in and recognizes they're all there, brings them out and asks the most important question that any person could ever ask, what must I do to be saved? Find a, find a more important question for an unbelieving person to ever ask in this life. 
What must I do to be saved? And he's not asking temporally. Some people will say, oh, he's, he, you know, he's, how is he going to save his life? Because he's, no, these prisoners are all there. It's not temporal. It's eternal. He's heard about the ministry of Paul and Silas and his team. He probably heard part of the things that they were singing and part of the things that they were praying. He understands. He's got bits and pieces. And this moment of providence that brought him to this place, to the edge, the precipice of eternity, forced him over the line to ask him to cry out, to cause him to cry out and say, what must I do to be saved? How can I be made right with your God? And he gives the only legitimate answer that we should ever give to an unbelieving person who's seeking the Lord. It's not do this and that and the other. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he talks about the rest of his household and we could talk about these sorts of things on another time if you ask me back, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I just love this this mentality that Paul has. And I just want, I, I just wish I could just kind of give this sort of mentality to each one of you that's here, that, that for all of us that um, are a part of Christ's church, that we could just have this mentality that God is at work in my life and I just, need to, I just need to trust him day by day. He knows exactly what he's doing in my life. He knows exactly what he wants to do through my life and I just need to day by day trust him and walk with him. It's never going to look exactly uh, like I want it to look, but that's a good thing. Because you aren't God. We try to be. We want to be. We act like we are. We sit on the thrones of our own hearts, but we need to be praying on a regular basis. And I want you to remember this. I want to haunt your thoughts with this. Every time you say, your kingdom come, it means my kingdom go. Your kingdom is temporary. Your kingdom is not a good and great kingdom. But God's kingdom is amazing. And it lasts forever. And he's gathering people from the four corners to be with him now and forevermore. And so I, I love it. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they continue to speak the word of the Lord, not just to him, but to all the house. He takes them the same hour and he starts to wash their wounds. He gave them some of these wounds, no doubt, but now he's washing their wounds. He's baptized. He feeds them. And I think it's also significant to see here that the belief leads to action. There's a response immediately. Hospitality, uh, you know, tending to them, feeding them. And it's just a reminder, just uh, maybe for someone who's uninitiated, that believing in Jesus Christ is all that we need to do to be saved, to be made right with God, but it leads to a life of commitment. And we don't obey God to be saved or to stay saved, but we obey God, we walk with God because we have been saved, because we belong to him. And so God does amazing things. He's doing amazing things in the world today. And I just want to encourage you 
with that. We have the greatest news this world has ever or will ever hear, that God came into this world to solve our biggest problem. That Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, left his heavenly home, took on flesh, and lived here and obeyed perfectly in our place. And then his reward was, after that perfect obedience, condemnation, wrath, separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God took what you deserve, what every single one of us deserves in the person of Jesus Christ upon himself. God took it upon himself in the person of Christ and then gave us what Jesus deserved. He took the wrath and curse of God and then gave us the blessings of God that will last through all eternity. It's the great exchange. It's the greatest thing, by the way, that's ever happened. The greatest exchange. Jesus says to you, give me your sin, give me your wrath that you deserve and your condemnation, and I'll give you the blessing that I earned as I lived here on this earth. There's nothing better than that. And to the extent that you understand that, you can lay yourself down, lay your life down, lay everything he gives you down for the sake of his kingdom. And so this church is, is formed here as we finish here this morning. And I just want you to think about it. This really rich woman, this slave girl that's set free, and then this older, probably retired military fellow, they're all brought together in this church in Philippi, this core group. And I think it's, it's wonderful to remember that this uh, core group, you know, the, the Pharisees prayed a prayer that said, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman, right? The Old Testament religious guys before Jesus came that Jesus had so much conflict with. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And they prayed it daily. What do we see here? It's hard to think of a more diverse group. You have in this core group a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a retired military jailer. You have a Gentile, a slave, a woman. You have racially Asiatic Greeks and Romans. Socially, you have wealthy, slave, and somewhere in between. But the gospel has universal appeal and reaches a wide variety of people. We always remember that by God's own design. That God is pursuing people and wants to work in us and work through us to reach people that we might think are unreachable that won't ever come in here. They will if God pleases. God isn't frustrated. He certainly isn't frantic. He is accomplishing all his holy will, gathering all his elect from the four corners of the earth for the glory of his great name and for the good of his people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the encouragement of the gospel. Lord, help us to be thinking about these truths. Help us to be encouraged and strengthened, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.